Hi guys, and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast. Today, I'm on location in a small town close to Pretoria to bring you the story of the first Anglo-Boer War, or at least the start of it. If you like this, then subscribe and look out for future episodes that will cover other aspects of that conflict that happened here in South Africa. It's a fascinating but little-known war. Where I'm standing by a busy main road was the scene of a terrible British military disaster. A defeat that set the tone for a war that exposed many of the weaknesses of the British Army in the late Victorian era. Over the preceding decades, the British Army had lost a number of battles. The garrison of Kabul was wiped out during their retreat in 1842. And of course, there was the shocking Zulu victory at Isandlwana in 1879, well covered on this channel. These defeats and others like them were always avenged in the subsequent fighting. But there was one war during the era where the British were well and truly beaten. That war was against the Afrikaans-speaking Boers of the Transvaal Republic, and it began with a bloody fiasco right here near a small town called Bronkhorstspreit, on the road between Leidenburg and Pretoria. Okay, so before we dive into the Battle of Bronkhorstspreit and walk the ground, let's have a super brief history lesson to learn the context for the First Anglo-Boer War, aka the Transvaal Rebellion. I'm joined today by Professor John Laband, arguably the greatest living historian of this era of South African history. Well, it's all it's all the uh, great confederation story. I mean, it's it's the conservative British government decided in the 1870s right to safeguard the route to India, to safeguard our coaling stations, because um, India is really the important thing about the empire. We need a nice secure South Africa without problems, without wars, without distractions. So the way to sort that out is to make a confederation of all the white ruled states, which meant the colonies of Natal and the Cape, but also the Boer republics of the Orange Free State and the Transvaal. With Britain already sniffing around, the Transvaal then fought a war against a local black chief called Sekukune of the Pedi tribe. He and his followers ran rings around the Boers, as they would soon do again to the British troops, and the war dragged on. Costs ballooned, and the Transvaal government introduced a tax on the citizens which no one was willing to pay. Bankrupt and surrounded by their black enemies, the sullen burghers, as the citizens were known of Transvaal, begrudgingly accepted British annexation. They actually annexed it in April of um, 1877 with the, you know, just a couple of policemen and all the rest of it, and simply drove in and said, well, here we are, and there was disarray in the Boer ranks and all the rest of it, and they sort of, sort of said yes. And then, then they very much had second thoughts. And then you have a whole process of deputations to London and meetings of throwing off British rule and saying what they wanted to do and how they couldn't stand being ruled by Britain, etc., etc. But in that sort of moment of weakness, they had been annexed. And now it's a question of how they could de-annex themselves. And that, of course, is what the... The well, the Transvaal Rebellion, the British certainly called it, because the Transvaal territory was British territory. So when the Boers rebelled and regained their independence, that was indeed a rebellion. So, so that's um, one way of looking at it. Then, as now, Britain Boer struggled to understand one another. The Boers did not like having a central government that dictated how they should live their lives, and they certainly did not want to pay tax. A sentiment I can understand. 
Grievances flourished and temperatures began to rise. The Zulu War of 1879 and the initial British defeats showed the Boers that Britain was not unbeatable. And the Boers suddenly perk up and think, well, if the Zulus can beat them, maybe we should as well. Maybe we have a chance. It can, can be done. And when the High Commission of the time, um, Sir Bartle Frere, went off to the Transvaal in March of 1879 during the Anglo-Zulu War to try and sweet-talk the, the Boers into settle down and please don't rock the boat, um, and actually offered them independence within a confederation, the Boers said, forget it. It's independence or nothing. And it's the taxation issue, which became the critical thing, funny enough, um, in 1880, it was the determination to tax. It was Piet Bezadenhout in Potchefstroom who refused to pay his taxes. It became a law case. Um, he didn't lose it, but he had to pay the legal costs. And the local magistrate um, distrained his wagon in, in lieu of costs. And at that stage, in rode a commander of 100 men to rescue Bezadenhout's wagon. Um, you know, and... And this is November of 1880, and, and it went on from there. And then after that, um, major meetings are called, a huge meeting at Pardacral, um near Pretoria in December of 1880. And the decision was taken to form a government, to create a triumvirate of three people. Paul Kruger was the sort of leading member of that. Um, and to throw off British rule, and basically they then sent a message to, to Lanyon in Pretoria saying, you know, this is it. We have declared the republic and, you know, that's it. Goodbye. And that's, that's when the war actually... Yeah, they declared their independence on the 16th of December, a very crucial date, because that's the anniversary of the Battle of Blood River um, when they defeated the Zulu Kingdom back in 1838. And having, having declared themselves independent again, they sent out orders, General Jaber, who was their commandant general, um, to raise up the commandos to go to war. So it was just simply like that. But it was a long time of brewing, really, yeah. In late November 1880, Colonel Belairs, who commanded the British troops in the Transvaal, made the sensible decision to try and concentrate more of his men in Pretoria. Two companies of the 94th, as well as the battalion's headquarters element, were based in a small town called Leidenburg. When the orders arrived, their commander, Lieutenant Colonel Philip Anstruther, rustled up what transport could be found, and on the 5th of December they began the 188-mile journey along the road that I'm now standing on. The column consisted of 263 soldiers, as well as a small number of women, children, and around 60 black wagon drivers. There was more than 30 wagons and the convoy would have stretched for at least a mile. Now as anyone who studies military history knows, a column on the move, especially one that lacks an effective cavalry screen, is very vulnerable to attack. And he goes along um, with, you know, along the road with no, um, no skirmishes or patrols on his flanks to see what's going on, um, taking no precautions whatsoever. Um, the, um, the soldiers are... Many of them have their arms actually being carried in the wagons. Um, it's um, the band is tootling along in front. It's it's all quite jolly and sort of amiable. And they're now approaching Pretoria. They're not that, as you know, having been there, it's not that far from Pretoria at this stage. And they simply had no idea that the Boers were there. 
On the 20th of December at around 1pm, the column approached this point where I'm stood now. It's gently sloping with only a minimum of concealment, but using the folds in the landscape and their excellent field craft, around 250 to 300 boars under the command of Commandant Franz Joubert had approached close to the road and were waiting for the British column. As if from nowhere, a large element of this Boer force suddenly appeared on the left of column, close to where I'm looking at a copse of trees. The sight must have sent shivers through the poorly prepared redcoats. The music of the 94th Regiment band abruptly stopped, and under a flag of truce, Joubert's dispatch rider called Paul de Beer came forward with a letter. The message demanded that Anstruffer and his men halt, and that any further movement would be considered an act of war. Anstruffer, as would be expected to be fair, stated that he would follow his orders and continue his advance to Pretoria. While they negotiated, that is where Nicholas Smith, Commandant Nicholas Smith, who's the sort of figure of the Boers in this war, the, the soldier really won all the battles going. He thought, no, we're not going to talk any longer while this is going on. Um, they're in our sights. We're going to shoot. And at that stage, the British had no chance to, de to deploy. All they could do is fling themselves down. Um, and the Boers encircled them, went behind the, the wagons um, and took them in their flank as well. So really, Anstruther, after a while, just simply had no choice but to give up. I mean, just totally pinned down by fire, you know. You have to remember that the Boer farmers were raised carrying a rifle. These were tough, well-armed men who instinctively knew how to fight a mobile form of modern warfare. The Redcoats were caught in a terrible predicament. Bunched up and in shock, most of the officers were hit within moments and it seems that command and control was quickly lost. The men even failed to change the sights on their rifles from 400 yards and consequently sent most of their bullets whoosh, soaring over the heads of the Boers. Boer horsemen then swept around the flank of the column where the British memorial is now and attacked the rearguard, wiping it out. Looking south now from the British Memorial, there is no sign of the track that the 94th would have been following. There's just a farmer's field. As I swing around, there's a busy main road that intersects the battlefield, right where the column would have been ambushed. Over to my left is now a copse of trees that I can only presume looking at the maps is more or less where the Boers would have been. But at the time, I don't believe it was a tree-lined area. I think it was actually quite bare. Anstruffer may not have been a great tactician, but he was brave. Badly wounded, he still continued to ride up and down the length of the column, encouraging his men. It's also worth drawing attention to the bravery of the women with the column. They helped to tend the wounded under fire, an incredibly dangerous job. In just 15 minutes of hell, it was all over. Anstruffer, realising the futility of the battle, ordered his men to wave their white handkerchiefs. The redcoats then laid down their arms and were quickly surrounded. The casualty figures are very telling. Listen to this, 156 men plus one of the female civilians, a lady called Mrs Fox, were either killed or wounded. That's a casualty rate of 58%, a staggering amount. Not only that, but most of the dead and wounded had been hit multiple times. Anstruffer himself had five gunshot wounds and died a few days later after having his leg amputated. Mrs Fox, meanwhile, badly wounded, survived only to die from her wounds years later. She was buried with full military honours. Her and the other ladies were also awarded the Royal Red Cross decoration. So there's a nice memorial here to the men of the 94th. It says, 
in memory of the members of the 94th Regiment, later 2nd Battalion Connaught Rangers, who were killed in action in this area on the 20th of December 1880, or subsequently died of wounds. It was erected by the Northern Transvaal Soldiers Graves Association and the South African War Veterans Association, 23rd of April 1961. On the reverse side of the memorial stone for the 94th are the list of names of all those people killed in action. Just picking a few out, there was Richard Ayres, Michael MacDonald, Isaac McKee, Patrick McPhillips. It really brings it home how many were killed in such a short space of time. Directly behind that new memorial, they've kind of cemented the old gravestones into a wall. It's not in terrible condition given its age. Here I'm reading one, it says, Sacred to the memory of Lieutenant Colonel P. Anstruffer. 94th Regiment died December 26 of wounds received in action, December the 20th, 1880. Next to him is one for Lef Lieutenant H.A.C. Harrison. Says he was the adjutant 94th Regiment, third son of the late Reverend C.R. Harrison, vicar of North Curry Taunton, Somersetshire. Sadly, it seems the names of some of the other men weren't recorded. This one just says, Rear Guard, killed in action, 94th Regiment. And how many men do you think the Boers lost? Well, there are conflicting reports, but my understanding is just one man was killed and four were wounded. Incredible, isn't it? Now, despite the embarrassment suffered by the Redcoats, there was one reason to still be cheerful. A clever ploy by the plucky Redcoats managed to keep their colours from falling into the hands of the enemy. Some bright spark took the colours and wrapped them around Conductor Edgerton's waist under his coat. They remained hidden there and he was then one of the men that the Boers allowed to travel to the British garrison at Pretoria to request medical assistance. At the time, this small piece of subterfuge was considered a small victory. The debacle at Bronckhorst Spray was correctly but conveniently all blamed on Lieutenant Colonel Anstruther, who died within days. There was some controversy at the time over the Boers' use of a flag of truce and a parley to get their men into a better tactical position, but the fact is that it was much easier for the British to blame the defeat on this underhand tactic than the fact that they made a series of errors. It's useful because how do British soldiers lose? Not because they're worse, but they're betrayed. Treacherous, scandalously treacherous Boers, you know, took them unawares. That was easier than admitting that the Boers had proved to be superior marksmen and natural guerrilla fighters. This was a lesson that the British would struggle to learn over the coming weeks. For the Boers, the easy victory was seen as a sign from God. It convinced many fence-sitters that they could beat the British. The first Anglo-Boer War saw the British Army take an absolute hammering over the course of multiple engagements. If you want to find out more, then subscribe and watch this space, as next month, over the next few weeks, I'll be walking with the battlefield of Majuba and we'll be hearing more from John LeBand. You don't want to miss that.